Welcome to Sound Prints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Sound Prints for the week of March 6, 2016. The American Council of the Blind held its mid-year meetings last weekend, February 27 through March 1, in Alexandria, Virginia. Patty Cox of Louisville and Shirley Stivers of Bellevue represented the Kentucky Council of the Blind at the Affiliate President's Meeting on Sunday, February 28, and at the Legislative Seminar on Monday, February 29. They then participated in ACB's Day on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, March 1. Listen on page 2 as they share some of their experiences with us. As SoundPrints listeners know from our calendar each week, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind sponsors a variety of programming and activities at our weekly roundabouts, held each Friday afternoon and evening here in Louisville. GLCB member Sue Ellen Milo often posts her roundabout experiences on Facebook at the end of the evening. This week, after the March 4 roundabout, Sue Ellen wrote, Tonight was a really cool roundabout. Carla helped me get my heritage downloaded from the App Store as we are moving all of our family trees there since it's more accessible to use. For our speaker tonight, we had Andrew White, a Civil War reenactor and local lawyer and student of history, come talk to us about the role Kentucky played in the Civil War. He quoted from diaries written in the day and told us a lot about battles that didn't get covered in school. Kentucky was very important to both the North and South, as so many of the rivers that were trade routes went through it. He also told us about some of the not-so-widely-talked-about aspects of Abe Lincoln. It was truly fascinating. Patty served grilled cheese sandwiches and soup for those who wanted it, and they were out-of-this-world grilled cheeses. Carla gave me some tips for improving the cooking of my grilled cheeses on the new wave. Then it was time for cards and crafts. I am now wearing my neon green lounging socks that I knitted with that really soft yarn, and Lord, do they fill the bill. Figures I finished them when winter is about over. We decided that my project for Tim and Whitney's baby is going to be something quite different from what I planned. It's going to be very cute. I, of course, got in some time at the spades table. This time at my table was Natalie, Joey, Kendall, and Lisa. Natalie played dealer and mentor. She tried to save us from ourselves with our bidding. Kendall and I won. I think the score was something like 117 to minus 51. As you can see, there's a lot of activity going on at Roundabout. This week, join us on page 3 as we share part of... Drew White's presentation on the Civil War in Kentucky. Drew is an attorney in Louisville. One of his longtime hobbies is the Civil War, and he has conducted much research on the subject. He has participated in numerous reenactments over the years from both the Union and Confederate viewpoint. To help you follow the geography referenced in his talk, you need to know that Louisville is located on the northern edge of the central part of the state, right on the Ohio River. 
Frankfurt, the state capital, is 50 miles southeast of Louisville, and Lexington is another 30 miles past Frankfurt. Richmond, Kentucky, is 20 miles east of Lexington, and Perryville is about 20 miles south of Lexington. Paducah is in the far western part of Kentucky, where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers come together. It's across from Carbondale, Illinois, home today of Southern Illinois University. And on page four is the Sound Prince calendar. Page two. I have two guests on the phone with me now. I have Shirley Stivers from Bellevue, Kentucky, and Patty Cox from here in Louisville. And we're talking with both of them because last weekend, the end of February, 1st of March, they attended the affiliate president's meeting and the legislative seminar and visit to Capitol Hill that were part of the ACB mid-year meetings. Welcome, Shirley and Patty. Shirley, you have never been to the mid-year meetings before, and um, so this was a new experience for you. And, Patty, you've been there, but it's been quite a number of years. So um, let's start out first and talk about Sunday. Sunday was an all-day session that had a variety of topics designed to uh, give affiliates the information that ACB would like for them to have and take back to their affiliates and chapters at home. So um, either one of you can, can begin. Um, tell me uh, what you felt was maybe a highlight of the day or what was interesting to you, how you think um, that what you heard might be helpful. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Um, I think that uh, getting the information to people about the fundraising efforts that ACB is doing was very good. Um, I think that it gave groups something to get, take back and to promote to their groups. Some affiliates aren't as involved as other ones, so this might be able to help get them involved. Okay. And it certainly gave them a variety of choices because there were quite a few different programs that were discussed. And uh, that came in the in the afternoon. Shirley, what did you think? What, what were some things that stood out for you? Uh, well, I was really glad to meet the new people that are on board at the, with the ACB. Um, Tony. Yeah, yeah, Tony Stevens. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to get to meet him um, since he does a lot of advocacy. Um, you know, it's kind of like what we were doing, and I really was glad to, to get a few minutes to talk to him. Um, also, I did take a lot of notes, so, you know, I couldn't forget anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there was a lot to take notes on because the day, um, all the days were just packed with information from morning until around 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, what did you, what, how, how did you all feel Monday went? What, what were the, some things that happened on Monday? And, of course, you had a good hill visit on Monday afternoon, too. So tell us about Monday. Monday they kind of went over the, some of the imperatives in the morning and so we could get a little highlight and um, their, their take on how things should go and what we should expect. 
And then they did the, the a couple of other ones in the afternoon. And so we, we kind of had a, a preliminary uh, view of what, what's going to take place. Uh, I thought that was really important. Since I had never been there before, I wasn't quite sure what, you know, what I was facing. So it did give me some kind of insight into what is, is supposed to go on. Were you nervous when you made that first visit? Oh, I was, yes. <laughs> I remember the first time I, I went to an office on Capitol Hill, and I was so nervous. Yes. I just wasn't sure I could even open my mouth to get started. You know, <laughs> you know it's kind of like kind of like talking up in front of a group. Once you get started, it's not so bad. But boy, beginning can be pretty bad. It can it, you can really be full of butterflies. So, Patty, what do you think about Monday? Monday was good. Um, I wish that they had put the imperatives the three and four earlier in the afternoon um, instead of having things in between because um, some people do have appointments on Monday like we did. Um, that's just a suggestion for ACB. But I, I think our appointments, you know, our appointment with John Yarmouth on Monday was really good. Um, we actually got to sit down with him. And the staffer that was in there really didn't say anything but hello and goodbye. But um, he asked questions, and he was very supportive of all the issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then Tuesday came. Tell us about Tuesday. And it doesn't just have to be that you made the offices, but did tell us about, you know, sometimes little things that happen on Tuesday or um, just give us an overview of what it was like to go to Capitol Hill because a lot of our listeners have never been there. One really important thing is you got to uh, judge your time a little better because traffic and anything can happen, and so that can really mess up, you know, your time frame, um, especially going someplace you've never been before. So getting a ride and getting to where you need to be, especially with as much walking as there is, um, that's a little bit of, um, of a challenge, I think. Were we exaggerating when we told you there was a lot of walking, Shirley? Oh, my, no, 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 no. <laughs> I need to invest in another pair of shoes that are just for walking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it went really well. Um, it, it was a lot of walking, but the way that we had our appointments, um, it kind of flowed from one building to another, mm -hmm. um, and that really works if you can get your appointments like that. Uh, we were that, really lucky on those appointments right. this time because, right. you know, you've been up there, Patty, when we've had to go back and forth from one building to the other and back again. And let's let's explain to the listeners what we're talking about because a lot of times I think people think that all of the senators and representatives have their offices in the Capitol building. No, and you're talking no. about going to Capitol Hill. They think about... The Capitol building. When you're looking at the Capitol with your back to the mall behind you, mm -hmm. um, which you see the Washington Monument and then past that's the Lincoln Memorial, um, on the right-hand side there are three buildings, and that's um, Rayburn, Longworth, and Cannon. Cannon. Mm -hmm. And they go from the bottom of the hill, which is Rayburn, up to Cannon. And on the left side, I'm not sure of the one on the, the first one, but we went to Russell, which is on the top. There's only two on the Senate side. Mm 
And, okay, and, and, and Rayburn, Longworth, and Cannon are, are for the office buildings for the, for the House of Representatives. Right. And since there's 435 uh, congressmen in the House of Representatives, there's a lot of offices in those buildings. Oh, yes. The best thing to do, which ours was opposite, is for you to start in, well, depending on where your appointments are on the Senate side. Mm-hmm. And so we went downhill, but then we had to go across and uphill to the Russell. And the uphill walk is, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Exercise. And, then, and something, something else, the buildings are not just buildings. They're like block-long buildings. You know, they're <laughs> really And they're not large. short blocks either. No. So there um, is a lot of walking there. Yes. There's a lot of walking. But when you go into the appointments, um, you don't normally see the congressmen at all. You talk to their staffers. And, it's, and each one that we talk to deals with um, issues pertaining to disabilities, um, and if there's more than one staffer that pertains to disabilities, you usually get the one that pertains to, you know, visual impairment and blind issues. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it may be someone who deals a lot with education issues. Right. Uh, we had a Medicare imperative, so um, one office said they had a staffer that dealt with health and education issues, and so that was a perfect person because um, we had the uh, Cogswell-Macy Act that related to education of blind and deaf children, and then we had the uh, low vision okay. devices, uh-huh, Medicare, where Medicare would hope, hopefully begin to fund low vision devices, so there it was in, over in the health issues, so, so that was that that would have been a real good staffer to talk to. But, we, but the Marrakesh and the other imperative with the Department of Justice, mm-hmm. all four of them related to either health or education. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I felt that, mo- well, all of our appointments were very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a good response and asked for um, the representatives to support the House Bills 729 and 3535, but um, when we got over to the Senate side, I felt that there was more support mm-hmm. for all the issues, um, even though, you know, they're in, two of the bills are in the House right now, but, you know, I felt like we would get support and, and maybe... Um, that Rand Paul could, you know, even introduce it into the Senate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and when we went to Mitch McConnell's office, we didn't just have one staffer. We had two staffers. Mm-hmm. That's and good. those two staffers were interested, asked questions about of the imperatives, even mm-hmm. the House side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good day. Were you... You had appointments from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3.30 in the afternoon, but they weren't right on top of each other. But that doesn't matter because there's a lot of walking. <laughs> That's <laughs> why. Mean, just to go from Cannon to Rayburn, Yes, there was a little bit of time in there, but 
we went in and we actually got something to drink and kind of hung out for a little bit, mm-hmm. got the information from um, Sharon, who was in the back of the cafeteria, but mm-hmm. then, you know, it was time to run upstairs and start doing the ones in the Rayburn building, because mm-hmm. our first set were in the Canon. Right. And so, and then we did, um, we did not get an appointment with one representative, so we had to um, drop off the imperatives. Mm-hmm. And usually, in the past, when we've dropped them off, we've been able to talk to a staffer. But when we went into that office, the only person there was the receptionist, mm-hmm. and that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it. I, I think that um, your your arrangement of your um, appointments really turned out well this year. Um, because you had the two at Cannon first, and then you had an hour. Uh, well, you didn't have a whole hour because you, the appointment was at 10, but then you had until 11 to get over to um, to the Rayburn building and um, talk with those two there. And so, um, and after lunch, or did you get lunch? Yeah, we ate oh, at good. the Russell building when we first went in. Oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we walked over. We actually walked over so that we had taken pictures. We had toured on Saturday, mm-hmm. and we took she got to take pictures of the mall from the Lincoln Memorial. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, it was probably the best picture of the Capitol that you would get because they're working on the dome, mm-hmm. um, and you didn't see all the construction in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we walked up there so that take pictures going back down the other way of the mall. Mm-hmm. So. Shirley, have you ever been to Washington before? No, I've never been. And you know, there is so much history there that there's no way I could catch up on everything that's, that's there in just that little bit of time. Oh, um. yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, you can spend days up there going in and going through things, um, but it's a, it is, it's a different experience. Um, you all got to ride the subway, right? We did. Yes. <laughs> that's just like on TV. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it sounds like it went really good. So hopefully we'll have at least one of these initiatives that gets through, and maybe more than that. If we get that Marrakesh Treaty, um, if if that passes, that will be a wonderful thing. You know, one other thing I want to touch on before we we go is that some of the things that you all were asking for, especially the Cogswell-Macy Act and the Marrakesh Treaty, um, asking for the uh, Department of Justice to, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, uh, notice of proposed rulemaking on the web accessibility, those things were not asking anybody to spend money. And in a year where we're all just, everybody just doesn't want to, you know, not, the things that are cost money are going to have a really hard time because nobody can agree on spending the money. Um, things that aren't spending money can be attractive. I would suspect that you probably had some staffers that were pleased to hear that you were asking for things that did not cost money. Am I, am I yeah. on target there? Yes, yes. yes. Um, something I noticed that, um, a lot of times, in like when you see these people on the news or in in different places, they're they don't seem like they're real people because there's so much going on. 
And then when you go to their offices and you talk with people in there, they're just like us. They, they want to hear and they want to listen and they do take notes, and I'm really glad that they ask questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, that's very true. They, they are people just like us. They get up in the morning and go eat breakfast just like we do or don't do. And so they're, even though it's a very different life in mm-hmm. Washington and in those offices and it's just a constant um, hustle and bustle and, and just so much going on, they still are very interested to hear what people from back home have to say. Well, we really appreciate you all going to Washington, going to the mid-year and representing Kentucky, and it sounds like you did a great job. We had a good time. Page three. You know, tonight our discussion time is a a presentation on the Civil War in Kentucky and Jefferson County, and our speaker is formerly J. Andrew White, better known as Drew. I just met Drew years and years ago at church. And he is really into all kinds of history. I would say, say the Civil War is a very, very involved hobby with Drew. And he's, I'm sure he's going to tell us all about many different things that um, he has done with that and, and talk about uh, the, the Civil War in Kentucky. As you know, Kentucky did not secede from the Union, but we're pretty Southern, too. It was a divided state. Andrew, we really appreciate you taking the time to come tonight and talk with us and bring us up to date on all of the things that you've learned. Many years ago, Drew came and talked to a group over at the School for the Blind when we had a a Kentucky Council of the Blind activity one Saturday, and it was on different kinds of hobbies. And this was just one part of several things during the day. And people were so interested that one other part of the program, we just kind of nixed that and went straight on through. And the questions just kept coming. So hope you all enjoy it. This is Drew White. Let's get started. Louisville, of course, is the largest city in the Commonwealth. In 1860, Louisville was one of the largest cities in the nation. In fact, one of the 10 largest cities in the nation and uh, as a result was a major staging area throughout the Civil War for the Northern Army. Now, people argue about whether Kentucky is a southern state or a northern state. Uh, It's true that Kentucky is a Union state, but it was also a southern state, like Missouri and like Maryland, uh, to a lesser extent Delaware and uh, eastern Tennessee. Um, Kentucky didn't know what it wanted to be when it grew up. It uh, didn't know whether it was secessionist or unionist. Early in the war, uh, after some of the southern states had seceded, there was a move for Kentucky to secede to the Union. At the time the war broke out, the governor of the, of the state was Brian McGalpin. And Brian McGalpin was a secessionist. Uh, he was a slave owner, and he was very much for uh, leaving the Union. But the legislature was predominantly Unionist, and so they were not... Uh, they were not looking to become the battleground of the Civil War because the state closest to the north that was in secession was the most logical place to become a battleground. If you look at Virginia and Tennessee, you can see by the names of the battles in those two states just how bloody those grounds became because those states were the southern states most northerly uh, that had uh, seceded and unfortunately had become the most contested areas of the war. Kentucky had a very interesting position in the war in that um, 
the border of Kentucky, the northern border, Ohio, the Ohio River, and down to the southern part of the state, down what they call the Purchase, uh, Mississippi River, were two of the major highways at the time. When the Constitution was written, uh, the government, federal government, was given authority and jurisdiction over navigable waterways. And people sometimes say, well, what's a navigable waterway? Well, Beargrass Creek, probably not a navigable waterway. Green River, just barely a navigable waterway. Essentially, there were no interstate highways, and the rivers of this nation were the interstate highways because boats could travel up and down them without much problem. And Kentucky's river system, Cumberland, the Green River, the Ohio River, Mississippi River, uh, were all navigable waterways. And those were important uh, arteries for taking supplies back and forth to the various armies. So Louisville had a significance in the early part of the war. Now, when the legislature and the governor couldn't get together on whether they're going to secede, by September, or by early summer of 1861, they reached a compromise called armed neutrality. Armed neutrality said, basically, that uh, we're not going to send troops to the Confederacy or the Union. We will arm our militias to repel any invaders, uh, north or south. In other words, stay out of our state. Uh, that broke down very quickly. By September or late August of 1861, um, you had armies coming into Kentucky from both north and south. There's still a lot of arguing as to who broke neutrality. Uh, Southern sympathizers will argue that uh, the North did it and vice versa. We do know, for example, that Nathan Bedford Forrest, who would later become one of the great cavalry generals of the Civil War and for the South, came to Louisville in the summer of 1861 and bought a thousand rifles and a thousand horses and a thousand saddles and took them back south to, to equip a Tennessee cavalry regiment. If that's uh, a belligerent action, uh, you could say that they started the war. But uh, uh, again, the, the issue of who broke neutrality is still being argued. But uh, in order to offset what was going on in Kentucky, what the Confederates thought was going on in Kentucky, i.e. the raising of troops, um, General Polk came across the river near Columbus, Kentucky, and occupied the heights overlooking the river there and built a large fort there. And Grant, who was a general even earlier in the war, uh, came in and occupied Paducah. I'll never forget when I was watching the dating game one night and, and the, the winning couple, they said, you've just won an all expenses pay trip to Paducah, Kentucky. And uh, I thought, what a mean thing to do. But uh, I, I've, been, I've been at Paducah, it's a nice little city, but if I want a trip there, I, I probably wouldn't think it was a big deal. Kentucky had men who were southern sympathizers and men who were northern sympathizers. That's why the, what, the, what the real rub was. Kentucky is unique in that it sent... Uh, a significant number of troops to both sides. 45,000 men were sent from Kentucky to fight for the Confederacy uh, over the course of the war, and about 100,000 men for the Union. 30,000 of the men who fought for the Union from Kentucky were slaves who were purchasing their freedom through a deal late in the war that was offered to Kentucky uh, men who were slaves that if they volunteered for one of what was then called the Colored Regiments, that's not politically incorrect, that's what they were called, uh, they would be able to, the government would free them from slavery. It is an interesting footnote to know that when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Lincoln in 1862, it freed the only slaves that Lincoln couldn't free and didn't free the slaves that Lincoln could free. If you read the Emancipation Proclamation, it freed the slaves in, in excuse me, in uh, 
did not free the slaves in Missouri, did not free the slaves in Kentucky, did not free the slaves in Washington, D.C., Delaware, Maryland, parts of Tennessee that were in Union hands, parts of North Carolina that were in Union hands, but it did free all the slaves in Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Arkansas, Texas, the very places that the Union could not really legitimately free any slaves. So um, in Kentucky, you had large plantations in various parts of the states, and those areas tended to be very pro-Southern. Uh, the bluegrass area and the purchase area, the most uh, prevalent. And you had a lot of uh, subsistence farmers that tend to be fairly, uh, tend to be fairly unionist. And um, every county produced its share of Confederates, but most counties produced unionists uh, in greater numbers. Uh, Kentucky at that time was considered a, a democratic state um, in, in the 1864 election. Kentucky is the only state, or I should say McClellan only carried Kentucky in the, in the, in the election against Lincoln. Um, there was one vote for Lincoln in McCracken County, Kentucky, during the 64 election, one vote. And there's a note on the county clerk's registrar that says, we think we know who this man is. <laughs> and getting back to Louisville now and our river systems, Louisville, again, then had a great prominence in the early part of the war because, as Lincoln said, to lose Kentucky, I think, is to lose the whole game. Uh, or he said another time, I hope that God is on my side, but I must have Kentucky. So, was there ever any action fought here in Louisville? Well, if you read the book, City of Conflict, you'll see there's a reference to a, uh, an action that took place down on Crittenden Avenue, down in what we now call the West End. And that is an incorrect, <laughs> that's incorrect information. There was a... Frank Rankin, who gave that information to Mr. Musser, um, had that wrong. Bless his heart, Frank Rankin was a great scholar and great Civil War historian, but he, he had it wrong. Um, early in the war, once, uh, once neutrality finally did break down, troops came in and occupied various parts of Kentucky, as I said earlier, and a series of battles commenced to be fought. The first Union victory of the Civil War was fought at a place called Wildcat Mountain, about 10 miles from, maybe not quite 10 miles, from London, Kentucky. There was a Union garrison there in training camp, and a fairly incompetent Southern general named Felix Zollicoffer, who had been a newspaper editor turned general. And those guys almost never work out, by the way. Poli the only thing that works worse than that is a politician turned general. <laughs> and the only thing worse than a politician turned general is a general turned politician, uh, because that almost never works out. The same things that make you great military leaders usually makes you a pretty bad politician, and usually vice versa. As an example of that, Nathaniel Banks was a very popular politician who was made a Union general in Virginia. And uh, he lost many battles to uh, Andrew Jackson that they started calling him Commissary Banks because they captured so much of his gear that he was responsible for a large part of the gear being used by the Confederate Army in, the, in Virginia earlier in the war. Moving back now to Kentucky, the Battle of Wildcat Mountain was won by the Union. The Battle of Rowlett Station fought about a month later in, near Mumfordville, Kentucky, was won by the Union. Uh, there were a series of other skirmishes, some won by the Confederates, some won by the Union. Um, a serious battle, though, was first fought at uh, a place called Mill Springs in January of 1862. At the Battle of Mill Springs, um, the Union served to the Confederacy a horrible defeat. The Union general there was George Thomas, the same George Thomas that would later be called the Rock of Chickamauga. He was, at that time, an unproved general. And uh, the Confederates at that point, even though at that, at that point in the war they had held a defensive line about 
contiguous with the Green River, about the lower third of Kentucky, was in Confederate hands. This broke the Confederate lines, and Polk abandoned his fort in Columbus, and the Confederacy left the state. To, to that time, there had been no serious action in, in Louisville or Jefferson County. Maybe a few uh, uh, scouting parties had come through from the Confederacy, but no serious action. There was a fort built. I don't know if you've been to Fort, who's been to fort Duffield, any of you? Fort Delfield's a fort that was built over the mouth of the Salt River there, where the Ohio River the, uh, makes its conjunction with the Salt River, to guard the, the falls of the Ohio. And one small skirmish was fought there, but that was actually not in Jefferson County. It was actually across the line over, just barely into Hardin County. Nothing serious is fought here. For many years, people thought that basically Louisville was escaped war. I, I was the first person I know of that researched this in depth. And Louisville will see action, but here's how it comes about. With the Confederacy in the West seeing such bad fortune, losing, losing every major battle at that point. The Battle of Shiloh and Shiloh, Tennessee, the Confederacy lost to Grant in a two-day battle. Uh, who knows what would have happened had Albert Sidney Johnson not tried to show people how, how brave he was and ride a cavalry charge as a commanding general and took a bullet to the boot and to the ephemeral artery, and he died that day. And, his two subordinate generals did a very poor job following up what he'd done early in the morning, the first day of Shiloh. But they lost that battle, and it was a, a horrible battle to lose because at the Battle of Shiloh, it was a great, a great awakening, there were more casualties at the Battle of Shiloh than there had been in all the previous wars put together the country had fought. Revolution, Black Hawk Wars, everything previously fought was eclipsed by the Battle of Shiloh. As, the, as most of the state of Tennessee had slipped back into Union hands, and as Kentucky was firmly in Union hands, the the leader of the Army of the West, a man named Braxton Bragg, a very petulant man who was um, not a very good general, and another man who was quite, quite a fine general, a man named Kirby Smith, who was the commander of the Army of East Tennessee, met for an officer's caucus and decided they needed to do something to put the South back together again because the Civil War was being lost by the South from the South. Uh, Virginia was holding strong, but the southern states were falling apart. There were large Union uh, inroads made into uh, places in North Carolina. They possessed Tennessee, Kentucky, some of Alabama, and uh, were making inroads in, in all corners of the South. So their plan was at that time to launch a two-pronged invasion into Kentucky to catch the Union to their rear uh, and take Kentucky into the Confederacy. They believed they could do this because John Hunt Morgan had ridden a raid in the summer of 1862 through Kentucky and came back with the glowing report that Kentucky men were dying to secede from the Union and join the Confederacy if only the Army would show itself in the state in force, which it did. Uh, Kirby Smith's men came up to the Cumberland Gap, his army of about 12,000, and Bragg's army of about 35 to 40,000 came up through Middle Tennessee. The first major action fought in that campaign was an action fought at the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky. That battle will be the most complete Confederate victory of the entire Civil War. The Union garrison of troops there at Richmond, Kentucky, 7,000 men, was all either killed, captured, or wounded in a two-day battle. Fought, unfortunately, for Kentucky history on the same two days as Second Bull Run, which was a much larger battle by far. Uh, so while Kentucky had saw the most complete Confederate victory, it's sometimes not uh, mentioned as much in the books as it should be. 
After that battle, there was great consternation throughout the state because as the stragglers who were field paroled came marching back into Louisville from Richmond, Kentucky, uh, looking more like Confederate than Union soldiers because they were ragged, shoeless. No, their shoes didn't wear out. Their shoes were, were taken from them by Southern soldiers who, which, when you're captured, you, you capture the whole person. You capture his shoes, you capture his coat, you capture his gun, you capture the whole guy. And if you need what he has, you capture that too. So these Union men came straggling back into Louisville and it didn't look good. And the forces in Louisville at that time were just a few small garrison forces and some militia. Does everyone know what militia is when I say militia? Militia is a term that gets used all the time incorrectly. Militia, it means armed citizens. So if you have an uprising somewhere and you gather the men together with their, with their squirrel rifles, that would be militia. Sometimes that... Sometimes in all the uh, in all the political arguments going on about the Second Amendment, we get we get a lot of inventive definitions of what militia means. Uh, the Second Amendment says uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the preservation of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And those that are really pushing gun control say, well, that means the regular army. That doesn't mean the citizens. And of course, you don't really need an amendment to give your soldiers guns. And so anyway, the the militia was uh, was guarding Louisville along with some very, very green troops up to the north, and there was a very serious concern that there was going to be a movement on Louisville. This became more serious after the next battle fought. Uh, the, bat the, uh, the forward advance guard of Bragg's army under a Kentucky general by the name of Simon Bolivar Buckner, you might know he became governor later in the century. After the war, uh, there was a period of resentment and then a period of reconciliation to where he finally became governor. Buckner took his men to the garrison overlooking the bridge at Mumfordville. There was about 4,000 men there that were guarding that bridge. It was an important supply line. Um, there was four days of siege. The Confederates got the worst end of it, losing about 400 men. The Union about 50 men. The Union were all in trenches and in rifle pits. And then there was a council of peace called by the General Buckner, and the commander of that garrison was a colonel, Colonel John Wilder. <coughs> And Buckner took him and had to inspect all of the uh, cannon emplacements uh, that he'd made and said, unless you surrender, we're going to destroy all of your men. We're going to kill all of you. And uh, so they stacked their arms and marched back to Louisville and, and, and surrendered, thinking that at that point discretion was the better part of valor. So now we have a campaign that has led to two important Confederate victories. It looked like the Confederacy at this point could do no wrong. And in Louisville, things were getting really desperate. In Louisville at the time was a man named William Bull Nelson. William Bull Nelson was, was the commanding uh, officer at the time. He was the same man who was the commander at the Battle of Richmond uh, less, a little less than a month earlier. He'd been shot at that battle. His, his wounding is kind of an interesting story. The Battle of Richmond, he arrived late in the day and uh, things weren't going so well that the, the remnants of the Union Army was in the graveyard at Richmond, Kentucky. If you've ever been there, there's a graveyard there in the courthouse. They were fighting their, their battle, and he was trying to rally them. And he was a big man. They called him Bull Nelson for a reason. He was a 300-pounder, which was not all that common in the 19th century. And he stood up and said, gentlemen, if they can't hit me, they can't hit anything. He was immediately shot down, bullet through the thigh. That did no good and a lot less, and they, uh, they withdrew from the field. He was, in, he was recovering from his wounds, but in Louisville, he was in charge of the uh, militia and the regular forces. A pontoon bridge was built across the Ohio River. 
The women and children were, ex were, were evacuated from the city all the way down to <coughs> Gilman's Point, which of course uh, would be Clifton here or, or uh, Crescent Hills, what I'm trying to say, thank you. And so they were evacuated and the men who were left were put in trenches around the city to guard what they thought was an impending invasion. There's a picture in the uh, uh, daily, in the Leslie's weekly at the time that shows the evacuation of Louisville. And uh, it's funny to look at because everyone's walking along with women carrying their parasols and men holding their hands. And they don't look very panicky in the picture, but apparently in, in real life, it was a pretty panicky time. There's a young girl here in, in uh, Louisville named Cora Owens who kept a diary who describes it as follows. Last Tuesday, September 24th, that should be the 23rd, by the way, she made an error in her journal. There was a great deal of excitement here in the city. Uh, General Nelson gave the women and children till the evening at four o'clock to leave town. He ordered the families from the point uh, to town to leave in a certain time. And if they did not leave, he would have them sent over into Indiana. They were taking gentlemen up all day Tuesday and putting them in the trenches. Uh, Jeffersonville was overrun with people and babies just died in their mother's arms uh, from cold and hunger. Buell arrived Tuesday night at 11 o'clock. Nelson said that he would fight for Louisville till the bitter end, and if he could not hold it, he would shell it. Interesting, interesting and, and uh, almost prophetic entry in her diary. So Buell, Buell's army ma manages to get back to Louisville. After these two great victories that uh, Bragg and Kirby have had, Buell's army finds their way back up the, what was then uh, the Louisville Road uh, from E-Town, the E-Town Pike, that we now call Dixie Highway, and made their way back into Louisville tattered and torn, and uh, even though Bull Nelson said he would, he would fight till the bitter end, he did come to a bitter end, but it was not the way he thought. I don't know if you, any of you ever read about this before, but Bull Nelson becomes the highest ranking officer to die uh, in Louisville during the Civil War. Bull Nelson, before, uh, just before Buell returned, or maybe, no, excuse me, just after Buell got back in town, was having a discussion with one of his subordinate officers that subordinate officer's name was Jefferson C. Davis. Now think about it. If you're a Union general and your name is Jefferson Davis, you, you probably have the worst attitude in the world. <laughs> and uh, the two men came to words and uh, Nelson slapped him. And he left the room, went to the next room where Governor Morton of Indiana was standing and got somebody's gun in that room, came back and killed Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson shot him through the heart to the chest anyway. He died about half an hour later. So the most high-ranking commander or soldier in killed in Jefferson County ever during the Civil War was killed by another Union soldier. Um, and it was equipped that if we leave these guys alone long enough, they'll win the war force in, in pursuit of the Confederates. In his diary, P. Marshall, Marshall P. Thatcher, rather, of the 2nd Michigan, describes those days as follows. We're referring now again to the 28th of September. He says in his diary, we retired leisurely to our camp at Louisville and immediately began to our heavy picket duty, whole regiments going out and standing all night by horse. On one of those darkest of southern nights, we took the Barstown Pike and found the enemy strongly posted within a few miles of the city. We crept up as near as possible and received a raking fire of grape shot from a battery. But fortunately, the, they fired low and only one man was killed, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Daniel Moody of Company E, the, the first blood of the Kentucky campaign. Knowing this position, their position and having no desire for night battle, we retired a short distance and stood divorced all night, but no further demonstrations were made by either side. Does everybody know what grape shot is? It's smaller bullets. 
you've got uh, four, four major protect projectiles that were sent out of Civil War cannon. There was solid shot that would be for taking down fortifications. There was hollow shot that would blow up in the air with a, with a timer, and that was anti-personnel. And there was hollow shot that would blow up on impact, that was also for anti-personnel. It sent out shrapnel like a, a grenade. There was uh, grape shot, which were smaller cannonballs, but have to give a cannon the effect of a shotgun. And then last but not least, there was canister, which were basically big cans of ball bearings that were also anti-personnel that were very, very effective. At that point, both the men of Wharton's cavalry and John Scott's cavalry will continue south. They will rejoin Bragg's army in Barstown, and Bragg will manage to fight a battle at Perryville uh, after a series of skirmishes on the way. Both, both armies were looking for water that day. It was a bad drought that October. It was unseasonably warm. And in six hours of battle, 7,000 men will be killed or wounded at Perryville, Kentucky, a little sleepy town near uh, down Boyle County. Uh, interestingly enough, Bragg won that battle but left the battlefield. Tactically, he inflicted more casualties. Tactically, he did a better job that day than did Buell, but was convinced he could not hold the ground and left the next morning, much to the chagrin of, of General Kirby Smith, who wanted to make a counterattack and, and end it once and for all in Kentucky and take Kentucky into the Union. But what discouraged Bragg was He'd been told that Kentucky men were anxious to come into the Union, and coming into Kentucky, they only recruited a thousand men. And so, having only recruited one regiment, he just didn't think Kentuckians were worth the trouble. Uh, he was extremely harsh with his own Kentucky troops after that point. Uh, they would leave the state in the next few days uh, after a series of more smaller skirmishes, and the Confederate Army would never come back into Kentucky on a mission to uh, to seize Kentucky. They would come back into Kentucky on raiding parties and, and guerrilla uh, strikes. They would come back into Kentucky in uh, diversionary efforts, like in the Highland Benton Line came in in 1864 to distract from uh, Hood's army that was going to Nashville. But there's never any attempt again to take Kentucky into the Confederacy. It remains hardly the Union. During the 62 campaign, something happened in Kentucky that didn't happen anywhere else during the whole war. When the 1st Louisiana Cavalry, the same unit that had gone out the uh, Frankfurt Pike and encamped, got to Frankfurt uh, on their way, uh, you know, just after the Battle of Richmond, they raised a Confederate flag over the capital of Kentucky. Kentucky is the only Union state that was captured, had its capital captured by Confederates. It's the only Union capital that had a Confederate flag flying over it, albeit for only a month. So, uh, but at that point, once they, they lose the Battle of Perryville, there's no serious effort to take Kentucky into the Confederacy ever again, although there are some substantial efforts to come to Kentucky and take materials for war and, uh, and to cause a lot of havoc. Well, it all ends, of course, later. later. By the way, in case you didn't know, the, the Union wins. Uh, that's why we're still the United States. Uh, but Louisville was not unscathed by the many events of war that took place in this in this in this country uh, we sometimes think if it wasn't Gettysburg it wasn't important but trust me to the boys that died here in Louisville Kentucky and in Jefferson County that was the whole war to them and they died protecting a county that uh, throughout the war supported the Union and uh, for the most part sent men off to the Union all right well thank you for having me 
this has been really great. And I, I, have you all enjoyed it? I, I found it fascinating. Thank you. Find books and more in accessible media with APH's free of charge Louis database. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Locate accessible educational materials from nearly 200 different agencies. APH products and textbooks can also be located using Louis. New extended searching now available with free Louis Plus. Visit soon. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Many book materials help Braille users jot notes quickly. Pull APH's mini-book Braille binder out of your pocket and begin to write on the mini-book slate in just seconds. Materials are sold separately so that you can choose the combination that's right for you. Call the American Printing House for the Blind, toll-free, 800-223-1839, or visit www.aph.org. Page 4. Sound Prince Calendar. On March 8th, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will hold a quarterly meeting from 12 to 2 p.m. at its office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. Vanda Pharmaceuticals will be presenting a program and sponsoring lunch. Call Bluegrass Council at 859 259 1834. Also on March 8th, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will be holding its next meeting in Owensboro, 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church, 628 Wing Avenue. For information, call Rick Boggess at 270-684-4418. On March 10th, the McDowell Center Advisory Board will meet from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Charles McDowell Center, 8412 Westport Road in Louisville. For more information, call Steve Dealey, McDowell Center Manager, at 502-429-4460. Also on March 10, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will meet at 7 p.m. by conference call. Call 605-475-4700 and enter code 155-619. On March 11, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will hold a roundabout, education and technology activities 3 to 5 p.m., eating healthy with diabetes from 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, $5 per person, bingo $2 per person from 7 to 9, and other games and crafts until 10 at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up. March 12 is the GLCB board meeting at 11 a.m. by conference call at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On March 13, KCB Next Generation will hold a conference call meeting at 8 p.m. by phone. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On March 14, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have its next community outing from 3 to 4 p.m. They will be walking on the track at Emmanuel Baptist Church, 3100 Tates Creek Road in Lexington. For information, call 859-259-1834. On March 15, the Tri-State Library users will hold an in-person dinner meeting from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Logan's Roadhouse, 5005 Shelbyville Road in Louisville. 
The speaker will be from the Louisville Free Public Library. Everyone is invited. For more information, call 895-4598. On March 18, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Roundabout will include education and technology activities from 3.30 to 5.30, dinner from 5.30 to 6.30, which will be pizza. The cost is $5 per person. And then... We'll be going to the Braille Readers Theater at the American Printing House for the Blind to see Mousetrap. Roundabout is at the United Crescent Hill Ministries. Call 502-895-4598. March 18 and 19 will be the Braille Readers Theater at the American Printing House for the Blind. They'll be performing The Mousetrap by Agatha Christie on March 18, the time is 7 to 9 p.m. On March 19, 1 to 3 p.m. APH's Braille Readers Theater presents The Mousetrap by Agatha Christie, the master of British murder mysteries. The plot features a motley crew of characters, an isolated house in the country, and a surprise twist ending. No props, no lights, no costumes, but all fun. For more information, call the American Printing House for the Blind at 502-899-2213. On March 20, the KSB Alumni Board will hold its next meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call 605-475-6006, code 294444. Also on March 20, the California Council of the Blind Hearing and Vision Loss Committee invites everyone to participate in a conference call concerning auditory anatomy. Their presenter is Tom Brennan, who has been an audiologist for about 30 years and is himself deafblind. This is the fifth in a series of monthly open interactive resource conferences to help you deal with your hearing loss. The phone number is 800-662-6992 and the ID is 1184109. March 21 is the next Kentucky Council of the Blind Board meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call 605-475-6006, code 294444. On March 23, the Bluegrass Council Peer Support Group meets from 12 to 2 p.m. at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. Learn about accessible voting from the county clerk and try an accessible voting machine. Call 859-259-1834 for details. March 25, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Roundabout will include education and technology from 3.30 to 5, a fundraising Avon party from 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, and games, crafts, and music after 7 o'clock at the United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville. Call 502-895-4598 for details. March 28 is the Guide Dog Users Membership Conference Call at 7 p.m. 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. Here are some events from April. April 1, GLCB will be hosting a roundabout. 
3.30 to 10 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries. On April 1 to 3, the Kentucky School for the Blind will be sponsoring a short-term retreat weekend for visually impaired students in grades 6 to 12 who are not current KSB students. The theme is the game of life and will focus on independent living skills. For more information, call the school at 502-897-1583. On April 7, ACB Lions will be holding its next monthly conference call at 9 p.m. The number is 712-432-3900 and the code is 796096. On April 8, the Louisville East Lions Club will be hosting its Spring Chili Supper at St. Leonard's Church, 4.30 to 7 p.m. For more information, contact Debbie Detheridge at 502-895-5895. Also on April 8, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will be having a roundabout, and it will include carryout from the Louisville East Lions Club Chili Supper. We'll be bringing you more details in a future sound prints. April 10, the Bluegrass Council will hold the fourth annual Sea Cruise. This is a fundraiser for BCB and is from 5 to 9 p.m. It will include live music by the band Conk Republic at the Banners Bar and Grill, 3650 Boston Road in Lexington. Be sure and plan to attend. Information at 859-259-1834. April 12, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will be discussing emergency preparedness at its April meeting, 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at Wing Avenue Baptist Church. Call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418 for more information. On April 15, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will be holding its spring quarterly meeting and elections. The program will include an Ask the Lawyer time, and there will be other activities as well. Call 502-895-4598 for information. On April 16, a Louisville Industrial Tour will be presented by the American Printing House for the Blind. It's from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., a bus tour of significant industrial sites in Louisville, starting at the historic 1883 building of the Printing House. Tickets are $25 per person and must be purchased by April 8. It's suitable for older children and adults. Call the Printing House at 502-899-2213. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.